going to be in Matthew chapter 16 today. But let me make a comment on the song that we, last song we sang. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That word simple is a very interesting word. And it carries the meaning uh, broad-minded, open-minded. And uh, God's word makes you a narrow-minded Baptist. We live in a day when people want you to be all-inclusive, be broad-minded. There's various truths that you can embrace. Relativism, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. But the Bible maintains there's absolute truth and only one truth. And it makes you very narrow-minded, which is a good thing. We've been looking at the commands that Jesus gave during his ministry on the earth. In light of the fact that when he gave the Great Commission, he told them to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature in Mark, but in Matthew, he uses these words. He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That first word teaches to make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then he says, Teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And so he would have us to note the commands of the Bible, and to teach them. It's important that we understand that the imperative mood in the Greek, which is um, command, it's imperative. It's a language that uh, would be associated with kings. If we're going to say that the Bible is from God, then we ought to noted as very important these commands we often vacillate when we see a command in God's word should I do it do I feel like doing it but as a king the king and the king of kings and the command comes down from his throne the idea in the imperative mood is that you must do it and not to do it is to be in rebellion against the king. And so in light of that, and if we believe that the Bible is our rule of faith and practice, then we need to understand that when we come to these commands that we've been looking at, that it's going to bring us to a crisis point in our lives. On the early in the frontier days of America, when the traveling doctor would go out to a home and somebody was in struggling with a disease or having problems, sometimes he would say, "Well, tonight we're going to going to uh, reach the crisis point." 
And that meant they're either going to get better or they're going to get worse. And so the Lord brings us, when we see these commands, they're not just for head knowledge, but they're to bring us to a crisis point in our soul to realize that what he said, uh, he said for a reason, they aren't suggestions, but they are commands, and either we'll obey them or we won't. And we're either going to get better or we're going to grow worse. A crisis point. And we must also understand that the commands that he gives to us, there's about 50 of them throughout the Gospels, that we might as well settle it from the very beginning that... uh, you're not going to be able to do it in your own energy. He tells us in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And we need to also understand that in John 14, 15, he said this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So these commands are not commands given to our head. They don't, they're not commands that are, that are directed toward our physical ability. But they're commands that are directed to our heart. And if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. And today we come to a very challenging portion of scripture in Matthew 16 and verse 24 then said Jesus unto his disciples if any man will come after me and that understanding that that is not that they haven't but he said now that you come after me it's it's understood that it's that you've done this if you've decided and you you're coming after me Understand that there's some terms of discipleship. If we accepted Christ as our Savior, he says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And we're going to look at here pretty quick, but there's kind of a transfer between, with the words, some specific words between being lost and being saved, and we'll note that, but he says, whoso will save his life shall lose it. Whoso will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. And he said, Very I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that reference is not to the second coming, but to his being glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they saw the Lord in... uh, the state that he's going to be when he comes again. 
before we break down these words, let me just make some general comments. There's this idea in Christianity today and perhaps in our church that there's really kind of two tracks that professors of Jesus Christ take. One is a strict discipleship trail or track. And the other is just a regular Christian track. The discipleship track is someone who's super committed, but not mandatory for all. It's for those who like hardship, sacrifice, and perhaps martyrdom. Some of those go to the mission field. They may be required to live on the mission field and poverty-like conditions, but their reward in heaven is going to be a great reward. It's a track that we hope as a church that, that some young, dedicated people will take and will admire them and will pray for them afar off and will support them like Noah George. Noah George was the top of his class at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Straight A's. Graduated with two majors. Graduated, one of his majors was physics. His professors came to him before graduation and said, listen, we've got you a scholarship to go to University of California, Berkeley and you can become a doctor in physics. Yet he said to him, and disappointingly for the professor, no, I'm going to become a missionary. I'm going to the Arab-speaking people. The regular Christian track it's for normal Christians. They can support missionaries and at the same time live in different degrees of luxury. They don't worry about self-denial or cross-bearing. For after all, we're under grace and all that cross stuff and denial stuff is for those that's on the discipleship path. John Stott said, the great scandal of Christendom today is so-called normal or nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilizations have spread, large number of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. I want you to hear those words. A decent but thin veneer of Christianity. How deep is yours? They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved enough to be respectable 
but not enough to be uncomfortable. Respectable, but not uncomfortable. The religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. And actually, it's no wonder why some people rightfully say that the church is full of hypocrites. They're acting the part. Jesus laid down the commands in this passage. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow me. And so let's break this down. First of all, in verse 24, you can see that he's addressing his disciples. Some have made this to be all about salvation, but it's not. But both saved and lost are in this passage, and I, and I say that because of some of the words that are used. And when he says if, as I tried to explain but not very good, it's a first-class condition which says that he, he already assumes that they are disciples. And if they are disciples, then the natural track that they should be following is to deny themselves. Him being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal to God, but humbled himself and became a servant. He denied himself. And the disciple is not greater than his master. Then verse 25 seems to be more in line with not the disciples, but you see, he doesn't address the disciples here, but whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now the word life here, is, when we go on down further, he's going to, like in verse 26, he's not going to use the word life, but he's going to use the word soul. And when he uses... The term here that he's going to lose his life, that word lost or lose his life means to destroy, to abolish, to kill, to give over to eternal misery in hell. But to find his life is to see and learn, discover and understand. And so Jesus is saying in verse 25 that if you remain on the throne of your life, if you reject confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you're going to lose your life. It's going to be better that you've never been born. You're going to suffer in eternity forever. Well, when you get down to verse 26, 
it's a total di totally different word when it talks about life. For what is a man profit if he gain the whole world and shall lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? That word in uh, lose and lose his soul here is 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 not life, but it's soul. And it has an idea to to suffer loss, to receive damage. It's like uh, in 1 Corinthians, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And so the loss here in verse 26 is not of salvation, but uh, of rewards. And you can see that, that that is in the context here for verse 27, for the Son of Man shall come in his glory and the Father of his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. And so it's like a man escaping from a burning building. His whole house burns down. He loses everything, but he still has his life. And so what I'm saying is this, is that when he says to, to his disciples, those who are truly saved, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him, you have a choice. But you need to understand there's a possibility for you to lose everything. And as it says in the Bible, saved though as by fire. You're saved, but you have nothing to present at the throne of God. And so it's easy for us to think that we do things in the Lord's name. We go to church and we tithe. We work hard. We provide for our families, and all things, those are good, but have we denied ourselves? And God can only let you know exactly what that is. We're not saying that everybody needs to go to the mission field like Nora George did, but everybody does need to deny themselves and take up their cross and to follow And so three requirements. Deny yourself. That word means to completely disown yourself. To separate from someone. Remember when Peter denied the Lord at the fire? They said, you're Galilean, and Peter said, no, you, you know, you got, you're mistaken here, and, and they said again, and Matthew 26 says, now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came to him, saying, thou also was with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied before him them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest, and he was gone out into the porch, and other maids saw him, and said unto them, that were there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And he again denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thou speech betrayest thee. And then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. Well, that word in this passage it says, that says that Peter denied him 
is the same word that the Lord uses here when Peter said, I don't know him, I don't have nothing to do with him, you're crazy, and I'm going to illustrate how much that you're wrong by cussing. And so the Lord is saying, listen, we need to say no to the old man. And you know what? He don't like that. He wants to dominate our lives. And our flesh loves sometimes exactly what the old man is saying to do. But Jesus, when he comes along here in this passage, let me again say to you that the, the commands of this passage, the imperative, is to deny yourself, number one, to take up your cross, number two, and to follow him, number three. These are not suggestions. And it's as though, I want you to picture in your mind, it's as though the Lord is standing before you like I'm standing before Chris, and he says, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's how powerful it is. He's addressing each of us. He's addressing me to, today. That, that again, let me say to you that this is not, these commands are not optional. They're commands from the king. And it brings me to a crisis point. Am I going to say no to myself on this? This is what I want. But this is not what Christ wants. And somehow I'm going to have to get a hold of that old man and say, get back in your box. And deny him. And to say no. It's to do, uh, just, just to uh, utterly disown him, that old man. He's not telling us to disown our own personality or our distinct individuality. That Christianity is not uniformity. Just like in the wedding yesterday, that Megan and Jock shouldn't try to change each other so it'll be uniform, but Christianity is unity, but it's unity behind following the commands <laughs> of our king. And it, dissolves, it involves some harsh actions to our inner man. Colossians says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth fornication and uncleanness and inordinate affection and evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which also we walked in some time when we lived in them, but now put off also anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy communications out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. And so what does it mean? How does that flesh out? One man gave these suggestions, and I think they're good. 
What does it mean to deny yourself? When you're not forgiven by someone that you've wronged and you've asked forgiveness and you're not forgiven, when you're neglected, when you're purposely set aside, people ignore you, when you sting and hurt with the insult and the oversight, but your heart is happy and you're content to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that's denying yourself. When you're good, is evil spoken of? When your wishes are crossed? When your advice is disregarded? Your opinions are ridiculed? And you refuse to let anger rise in your heart? Or even defend yourself. But you take it all in patience and loyal silence. That's dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularities, or any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with foolishness and extravagance and spiritual insensitivity and endure it, as Jesus endured, that's denying yourself. It's not saying that we should be a pacifist. But it is saying this, is that when we've denied ourselves, we're not going to take up the sword to fight when we've been wrong. I'm not saying that we let people murder us, and any missionary that's been murdered has, you know, the Lord has his hand in that or not in that, but, uh, or he has his hand in everything. But, but I'm saying that uh, we always want to defend ourselves. You can't talk to me that way. Pretty quiet in here. When you're content with any food and any offering and any clothes and any climate and any society and any solitude and any interruptions by the will of God, that's denying yourself. When you never care to, you know, this is important here. When you never care to refer to yourself or to record your own good works, or seek that someone would pat, on, pat you on the back and say, good job, brother. When you can truly love to be unknown. That nobody knows what you did except you and the Lord. You know, I preached this great message and I went and said the back door and people went out and they said hello, but no one said Man, what a great message, Brother Humphrey. And I've kind of found over time that a lot of times people say, what a great message. They didn't even listen to it. (laughs) What I'm saying is this, is that our first allegiance is to the king. It's not about us. 
It's about the king. When you see another person prosper and his needs are met, and you can honestly rejoice with him in your spirit and feel no envy or even question God while your own needs are far greater and desperate, that's denying yourself. Why is God blessing them and not blessing me? When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourselves and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellious heart or resentment, and that's dying to yourself. And so, if we're going to be a disciple, he says, if you, if any man will come after me, and it's implying, now that you've come after me, this is the term, these are the terms of following me. These are the terms of discipleship. Number one, deny yourself. Say no to that old man. I want to be recognized. Peter and John. Lord, let us sit on both sides of you when you come to your kingdom. Let us be the first and second man in your kingdom. I want some recognition, Lord. And the Lord said, that's not happening. Then he says, to take up your cross. That's been misrepresented for years, but taking up your cross is not bearing a burden that, you know, you have a poor eyesight or you have aches and pains and it's just your cross to bear in, in life. What was the cross made for? It was made for dying. It's to take up the cross and be willing to pay the price for Christ. And those of Jesus' day clearly understood the concept of the cross. And if you study out, if you study out um, the crucifixion underneath the Romans, it wasn't just 20 a year. It was thousands. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was because <laughs> Rome ruled with an iron fist. And there was peace. The Romans' roads really increased mission work, that, the, that there was safety. The robbers and the bandits that were there before Rome had eliminated them, and you could travel fastly, and, and, the, and the gospel really prospered in those early years because of the Romans' road. But you just crossed Rome, Rome one time and they eliminated you. Well, the cross was for dying. Someone asked A.W. Tozer, who does lots of Christian devotional writing, 
What does it mean to take up your cross? And Tozer told of a story of an old man. And here's what he said. One time a young man came to an old saint who taught the deeper life, the crucified life, and said, Father, what does it mean to be crucified? And the old man thought for a moment and said, Well, to be crucified means three things. First, the man who's crucified is facing only one direction. That's good. When you're crucified, you're only facing one direction. The old man scratched his head and says, Secondly, the man on the cross, he's not going back. He said his final goodbyes. And thirdly, he said the man on the cross has no further plans of his own. He's facing. And so here's the picture. I don't know, you know, we have to get this idea that bearing your cross is, is just suffering for something in life. We don't have a cross in our church, but <coughs> if this was the cross, and I'm nailed to the cross, I'm on the cross. I'm not thinking about whether the Celtics, who were three zero down in the in this uh, in the NBA playoffs, and yesterday they tied it up three to three, and if they win the next game, it's never been done uh, over 189 times. It's never been done in the NBA championships. If I'm nailed to the cross here, you think I'm caring about what the Celtics do in the next game they play? Do I care about whether we're going to be able to feast for King Salmon down on, because they say the run's supposed to be bad this year? Do I care about if I'm going to be in shape enough at 73 to go one more time to Moose Camp? And then next year, maybe one more time. And then they might have to recruit some people to pack me in and pack me out. Do I care about that? No. No, I'm, I'm uh, nailed to the cross. I, I'm, I've come to the place where, as he said, that I'm only facing in one direction. And so if I'm here, and I'm just facing forward, facing in one direction, I'm not going back. You're not going back. If you're nailed to the cross, you're not going back. You're nailed there. And if I'm nailed to the cross, I have no I have no future plans. I'm just saying, Lord, whatever whatever you want. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And so when we move that from the physical realm into the spiritual realm. And he says that we ought to take up our cross. I gotta, I gotta mortify that old man, as it says in Colossians. I gotta mortify him. That the cross is for killing that old man that wants to do his own deal. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. When he gives these commands, it brings us to a crisis point. And I have to say, Lord, in my own ability, I don't have this. But by your grace and by the aid of the Holy Spirit, 
I'm not turning back. I have decided to follow you. And when I want to go to the left, and you want to go to the right, I'm going to the right. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me. For I'm meek and lowly. That so often we, we uh, have our own agenda. And even our own agenda in Christianity. And the privilege of being able to take the yoke upon you. See, see, and I don't know if you remember when I taught on that, but we want to say, we're working for the Lord. We're working for Jesus. We're working to serve the Lord. And I'm doing this for the Lord, and I'm doing that for the Lord, and I'm doing this for the Lord. But when we take our yoke upon us and learn of him, when we have his yoke, he's the, he's the older one. <laughs> he's the older of the draft animals. And where he goes, we go. And what I'm saying is this, is oftentimes we work for the Lord when we have the, we have the, we have the ability or we have the opportunity to work with the Lord. There's a big difference there. People say, well, I did this and I did this and I did this for the Lord. I remember early in my ministry, this guy said, well, I did this for the Lord and I left here and I came here and I did this for the Lord and I did this for the Lord and I did this for the Lord. And then he dumped on me. He didn't bless me. Well, he's working for the Lord instead of working with the Lord. The greatest privilege is to work with the Lord. Because in working with the Lord, we get to experience Jesus. And so he says, says to take up the cross. One direction. No going back. And again, let me say to you that that is not accomplished by intestinal fortitude, but that's accomplished, <laughs> you know, for a man up. That's accomplished by surrender. And that's where the problem is, isn't it? I'm a, I'm, listen, I'm a redneck. A thorough 100% redneck. I don't like to be told what to do, even if it's told right. I told Susie the other day, I finally realized why I get so upset about things. And she said, why? I said, I like to be in control. <laughs> she said, well, I've known that all, my, all the time we've been married. You know, I've known that forever. Because if, I don't know, if I'm not in control, I don't know what's going on. And you see, we, we like to be in control. But the Lord's bringing us to a crisis moment and said, if you're going to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, it involves surrender. It involves total reliance upon the Savior. And then he says, follow me. It's a habitual, it's, it's present tense, which means continual, habitual. It's where we dare to get up in the morning 
and bow our head and say, Lord, what would you have me do today? Because that's too scary. He might ask us to uh, go witness to that person that's been on our heart, but we've not been had enough guts to go do it. But see, here, when that happens, here's our opportunity to work with the Lord instead of for the Lord. Daily, and it, as we've said, it calls upon total dependence on the Holy Spirit. This word, follow me, was a very technical term in the Greek. And it had a number of things that it could relate to. A soldier who is following his king would be this word, a kolutheo. It's a slave following his master. We don't like that, do we? Especially as Americans, as a servant. The whole servant mentality that is in Europe, in England years ago. We don't like that. But a slave follows his master. A doulos. The doulos in the Bible it was a slave. It's a citizen following the laws of the state. It's a scholar following his teacher. It's a young man following the wisdom of an elder. And all that implies following the Lord. Without question, anywhere, at any time, and at any cost. When the Lord began to stir my heart, when I came to Alaska to hold a revival meeting when this church was still open, and the Lord began to, I remember the missionary said, let's go, I got, I got to talk to you about something. And I said, okay, let's go. You know, he was all stirred up, and I thought, I don't know what his, what his problem is, but we'll go down. So we started down the road, and, and uh, we got, got halfway down Plaque Road there, and he said, I've been praying that this church is going to organize this mission pretty quick, and I've been praying. I don't want to, I feel like I need to go on and start other missions, and, and I've been praying to the Lord for who I should put, bring here, to who would come here, who he would have to come. And he said, every time I pray, your, your name pops up. Here he's sitting over there, I'm over here, and I said, I didn't know he smoked dope. The Lord's not telling me that. But before the meeting was over, he definitely told me that. I was fixing on preaching a message to the church, and not just to lost people, and I was very disturbed and very much uh, agitated and didn't have peace. And I thought, well, maybe the Lord would want me to preach on somebody might be lost here. And, and I'd been studying a message out of John, so I flipped over there, and was, and I forget exactly what chapter, but uh, I read down there, and <coughs> I got to the place where he said, I've sent you to labor where other men have labored, that you might enter into their labor. I was trying to start a church in 
Vancouver, Washington at the time. And when I read that verse, <laughs> the Lord, he, dropped the, he didn't drop a hammer. He dropped an anvil right on my heart. And I knew that he'd called me here. But there has to be a, a surrender. And there has to be the understanding that uh, we're to follow. And those, lots of the times we hear those stories from guys like Noah, preachers who have been called. And yeah, you know, they are the ones that are in the discipleship trail. They're the ones that God really wants to do something with. But I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care how deep your knowledge of Scripture is. I don't know. It doesn't even matter how great your IQ is. If you're a Christian, if you've been saved by the grace of God, God is saying, if, he says in that, if you've been saved, then understand this. These are the terms of discipleship. Deny yourself. Impossible without God's grace. Take up your cross. Face one way. Determine you're not going back. And then follow me. Well, that brings us to a crisis. That brings us to a point, are we willing to, are we just going to ignore it? Or are we willing to bow our head and say, Lord, what, what would you have me to do? Lord, you bought me with a price that I'm not our own, not my own. Help me to glorify you in my body. Are we even willing to do that? That's pretty scary. Because uh, I get agitated when I'm not in control. And there's something weird about Christianity. There's peace and surrender. It's peace and surrender. And then we have the crisis. Look what he says. Verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Then he shall reward every man according to his works. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior's soul? Not one gift to which to bring him, must I empty-handed go? Now, let me tell you something. Since 1984, when I came here, the next year, 2024, which makes for 40 years being here, the hearts of men in the world and the hearts of men within the church have changed.
Master has truly The willing to do without has changed. The idea that our buildings must be luxurious has become the normal when it comes to whether we buy this new thing or we send this money to the mission field. And I... (coughs) I know that God's not through with us, but let me say to you that we can become soft. And it takes some backbone to deny yourself. It takes some guts to pick up your cross. And to follow him. But what a joy to be with him. That's Christianity. Let's do away with a soft veneer. And I don't want you to go away from here saying he's wanting everybody to surrender to go to the mission field. I do want everybody to surrender to go to the mission field. <laughs> but I'm not saying that's God's will. But I'm saying whatever job you're working, even as a mama in the home, that God has commanded, his command is this, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The greatest years of your life, the greatest moments of your life, is that when you know 100% I'm right smack dab in the middle of the Lord's will. And if you're not there, God's commanded you to get there by God's grace. And he's reminded us one day there's going to be a payoff. And no surrender to the Lord is ever going to go unrewarded. Why do we want to Mickey Mouse around and live hypocritical lives as Christians? Why are we afraid to come to the point to say, You don't, you know, don't praise me. It's by the grace of God I am what I am. And he deserves all the praise. I hope you let that sink in your heart, and I hope you understand that these are commands from the king. And now you're going to have to deal with them. All right? You're dismissed.